The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leveraging S1PR Modulators to Provide Patient-Centered MS Care, an expert-driven review of the data. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KAP860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this CME event that is entitled Leveraging S1P Receptor Modulators to Provide Patient-Centered MS Care. My name is Mark Friedman. I'm a professor of neurology at the University of Ottawa, member of the Department of Medicine at the uh, university, as well as a senior scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. So why are we even talking about S1P receptor modulators in the management of multiple sclerosis today? Before I can get into what these are, we need to discuss how they actually work. And it's important because they're named after these receptors. As you can see here, there are five different receptors. Each of these transmits signals intracellularly to the various types of cells where they're bound to. And the end result is many different functions throughout the body, be it proliferation, migration, uh, endothelial cell chemotaxis, or an important one to MS, immune cell trafficking. And each of these receptors, depending on uh, their location, will have an effect if bound by one of our uh, S1P receptor modulators. So uh, these extracellular S1Ps interact with G-coupled proteins that leads to the intracellular signaling. And so you can see here the five of them. Now, S1P receptor one is really important because it's the one that leads to the uh, retention of lymphocytes in lymph nodes. It has some minor effects because of its location on the uh, cardiac tissue. But the big one for cardiac is S1P receptor three. Uh, some spill over to S1P receptor 4, but the other one that is of interest to us is the S1P receptor 5. Now, this one is really involving the CNS structures, such as the oligodendrocyte. And whether or not any of these drugs actually make it into the central nervous system, the effects that are mediated through S1P receptor 5 are considered to be pro proactive and uh, good for, say, a disease like multiple sclerosis, where you end up having dysfunction of the oligodendrocyte in its ability to remyelinate. Uh, that is not where these drugs have actually been proven to affect, the main one being the S1P receptor 1. And so now we move into a whole new generation of S1P receptor uh, family of drugs because they become more specific. The first generation one heralded by fingolimod uh, a drug that actually needed to be phosphorylated to be active in the body, so there was a slight delay, had a lot of spillover to the other receptors, especially those that mediated some of the cardiac function, which caused some problems when you first started the drug and required first dose observations to um, get rid of the possibility of bradycardia or monitor patients for significant bradycardia. The newer ones are focused more on one and five. One, five is really not that important because it's only uh, if the uh, drug can actually make it into the CNS and we have not seen proof of uh, any kind of mechanism that it works within the CNS. So the big one is S1P receptor 1. So we'll talk in a second what that's doing. 
Lymphocytes move around the body. Once they've been activated, they kind of station themselves into lymph nodes. And in these secondary lymphoid structures, such as lymph nodes, the activated T cells, for instance, will get their mission. Think of it as a, a special army personnel that have now been handed their mission. They need to go and seek out their target. And in order to egress or leave the lymph node, the lymphocytes then follow down a, a, uh, a gradient of S1P receptor um, uh, concentration, and they eventually leave the lymph node, get back into the circulation, and then are able to find their target wherever it might be in the body. Without S1P on the surface of the lymphocyte, there's no way it can get out of the lymph node. Think of it as a um, a parking ticket and you need to get out of the garage and you have to put the ticket in order to lift the gate. Well, no ticket, no gate lifting, so you're stuck in that parking lot forever and that's exactly what happens to these lymphocytes. They get sequestered inside the lymph nodes and that's important because they're not out of the body. They're not depleted, they're actually sequestered. And once you stop the drug and the S1P re-expresses itself on the surface, the lymphocyte is then able to egress, enter the circulation, and then seek out its target. We've got actually four approved drugs. Fingolimod was the first of these drugs. I already mentioned to you that it needed to be phosphorylated to be active in the body. Uh, that's not true for the others that are all pre-phosphorylated. We've got three others, Ozanimod and Ponesimod, both uh, approved for the treatment of relapsing remitting MS, and Siponimod, also approved, but only for active secondary progressive MS, which doesn't preclude its ability to be used for relapsing remitting, but it tends to be used mainly for secondary progressive. And these are different in the sense of which receptors they're going to most likely bind to. So if you look at the far left, you can see that S1P1, 3, 4, and 5 are all bound by fingolimod, and so the effects of fingolimod will be manifested through the binding of those receptors. Remember, that only S1P1 is important for lymphocyte, whereas three and four might convey some um, effects on other tissues, such as the cardiac, and that may be a disincentive for using Fingoloma because of some of its secondary effects. The newer drugs, Siponimod, Ozanimod, and Ponesimod, seem much more focused on their binding to the S1P1 and 5, and I already mentioned 5 is important, but only if they gain entry into the central nervous system and we've not seen that all of them can do that in any kind of concentration that will lead to a benefit. Uh, so the side effects are seen when the S1P receptors are stimulated on tissues other than the lymphocytes. And these range into about three different categories here, especially if we're talking about fingolimod. The big one was the cardiac, and because of it, it can slow the heart, and actually cause even arrhythmias, and therefore patients need to take their first dose in the presence of a physician. And if there's significant bradycardia, the patient actually even has to be admitted overnight for follow-up. The other two are somewhat idiosyncratic. Um, and with the eye, there was something actually known as fingolimod-associated macular edema. And this is so important because it's such an easy reversible problem with the eye. But if it's left to continue, the eye, uh, the macular edema can actually get much worse and patients could conceivably go blind. It's picked up easily by OCT, uh, ocular coherence tomography, which is done in most ophthalmology labs. 
Uh, and so it's recommended that patients about three months into their treatments be at least checked for macular edema. If it's going to occur, it's going to occur then. And then if necessary, the medication can be stopped. This is seen a lot less with uh, the newer drugs. Nevertheless, it's not completely absent. And some people still recommend that that check be made at three months. Finally, a much rarer one, and that's been seen with very high doses, especially of ponesimod, we started to see an effect on the pulmonary, um, uh, especially the, uh, the, the architecture that leads to perhaps asthmatic type of, of uh, constrictions. So uh, the bronchial tree can be affected by some of the receptors, but in lower doses, we didn't see that much of a problem. All of the drugs are potentially able to do this. And when the clinical studies ran, uh, many of the patients were actually tested with pulmonary function tests on a regular basis to be assured of the safety of each of these molecules. When we look at the profiles, there are some things I'd like to focus on. And uh, we'll talk more about fingolimod and its comparison to ozanamod and ponesimod since they are really used for relapsing disease and saponamod much less so. And what made fingolimod somewhat problematic is it had a very long half-life of six to nine days, whereas the newer drugs uh, seem to have a half-life of a day or two. Now, the, the exception is ozanamod, and that is because of a metabolite that can actually hang around for quite some time and leave effects in place for two to three months. But the, the uh, uh, prodrug, the, the ozanamod without the metabolite, has a half-life of very short, 21 hours. The, uh, also, when you stop the drug, you're expecting those lymphocytes that are stuck in the lymph nodes to egress, come out. How long does it take? Well, with uh, fingolimod, it can actually take some time, and it's six to eight weeks before the lymphocytes start to come back to normal, whereas that's much faster with saponimod and ponesimod, a little bit longer depending on the metabolite for ozanamod. All of these drugs are somewhat uh, immunosuppressive, so there's some baseline treatments or at least investigations that should be done before patients actually start. It's so important that you get a cardiac history and make sure that they're not prone to arrhythmias because any of these drugs are capable of doing them. The newer drugs much less so than fingolimod. Uh, it's, it's important to recognize that their immunosuppressive nature makes it difficult to use or it's contraindicated to use any live vaccinations. So if a patient needs to have live vaccination, these patients need to get them before they start. And that's in particular importance for, say, herpes zoster if you've never had chickenpox. Uh, the primary immunization for chickenpox is a live vaccine. Certain vaccines for travel around the world are also live. And then you just want to make sure you have good liver function, normal kidney function, and take a little bit of an ophthalmological history. If the patient's been prone to uveitis in the past, they tend to get more of this macular edema. These are things to consider uh, an alternative drug to the S1P receptor modulators. And the big difference is, of course, the first dose monitoring, and that's very true for fingolimod. Not so much for the other drugs, but if the patient had any sort of cardiac history, you might consider uh, first dose monitoring if it's totally uh, arbitrary and optional for the individual. The other thing that has made it less likely to have problems with bradycardia is where sphingolimod started full dose right off the bat, 
the other drugs are actually titrated in very, very slowly, and that also has uh, obviated the need for first-dose monitoring. When we look at the efficacy of these drugs, they've all proven themselves in phase three trials. In the case of fingolimod, there were the freedoms one and two, both parallel studies, absolutely identical, looking at 0.5 milligrams versus placebo. Actually, much higher doses were tested before, up to five milligrams, uh, before it was actually done, uh, determined that 0.5 milligrams was uh, beneficial. And uh, they had an effect across the usual outcome measures in MS. The big one, the primary outcome measure is the uh, relapse rate, which has been reduced, as you can see here, 55% versus placebo. But it also tested itself against the once weekly interferon beta of 1A in transforms, and there was even benefit over that first line therapy. So this is now considered a higher efficacy therapy by virtue of the fact that it is superior to at least the interferons. With Ozanamod, very similar, two parallel studies, Sunbeam and Radiance, uh, each of these tested themselves against the interferon beta-1a once weekly, so similar to the transform study in Fingolimod, and uh, the one milligram dosage of Ozanamod was the one that ultimately was being looked at, and it's produced uh, relapse rate reductions and uh, MRI effects very similar to that of Fingolimod. The uh, third medication that we looked at it was Ponesimod, and it was done in a phase two, but also one phase three trial. And instead of taking on interferon beta-1a, instead it took on teraflutamide, an oral medication which was much newer than the interferons. Uh, it too showed a significant effect at reducing relapse rates to the tune of 30%, and the uh, uh, MRI, so that always parallels the relapse rate. But interestingly, as we'll talk about in a moment, it had a nuance that it also could reduce fatigue in patients uh, and a very important symptom that patients report and to date has had very little in terms of successful treatments. Siponamod was tested only really in a phase three trial involving secondary progressive MS, much older population. Nevertheless, it has an effect on relapse rate just like the others and you can see a 55% reduction, but this is against placebo, not against a uh, active comparator. It had similar effect on reducing uh, an MRI, but the important one was that it also slowed disease progression, which is what it was primarily looked at for in the phase three trial called EXPAND. Uh, and so that was the primary outcome measure of that particular trial. There has been some data that looks at these patients and the trials that uh, generated their approval uh, up to eight years in Fingolimod, uh, seven years with Siponimod, just 50 months with Ozanimod, and up to eight years with Ponesimod. And these are a little bit tainted because the patients obviously who are able to tolerate the drug are still in the study. And after all this time, all it's saying is that the patients who've done well and already had an effect early on continue to have that effect. It doesn't wear off with time and there weren't really any new safety issues that, are, that arose in this long-term follow-up. Okay, so now you've been introduced to the S1P receptor modulators. Question is, how do we use them? Well, there's lots of ways of picking drugs for patients, but it's really important that we uh, look at the 
what we call personalization of the medication. Since we have so many to choose from, there are a lot of factors that come into play when we are looking for uh, the therapy that is going to suit this particular individual. So I put this into a, a, a few different uh, boxes here. We have to consider what disease we're dealing with, how active it is, and how aggressive it is. We have to deal with the individual patient in terms of their ability to tolerate the medication and you know what kind of risk uh, adversity these patients may have, since some may want be very tolerant of risk at all and others are willing to take chances. And then finally, you know, a, a little bit about the patient themselves. Is this somebody who's traveling and needs vaccination? Is this somebody who's planning to be pregnant if it's a woman in the next couple of years? Is this someone who has comorbidities uh, with cardiac problems or, or even hepatic issues? These are all things to consider. So we, we profile the disease, we profile the therapy, and we profile the patient. And in the end, that's how we decide on a therapy. How do we profile the disease? And the patient, well, there's some of the factors that are seen here. We know there's certain demographics that indicate a patient may have a poor prognosis, hence the need to go with a, a higher efficacy therapy. We get some of that from the MRI burden that may be present at the beginning. There are clinical factors, how the disease has presented itself and what parts of the nervous system have been affected. And we even have some biomarkers aside from the MRI, such as neurofilament light chain that helps inform on a patient's prognosis as to whether they may be warranting a more aggressive approach to the therapy. I mentioned the notion of comorbidities, and this is really important because the comorbidities may affect not only the disease course, and that's what was seen in this particular paper, the more comorbidities, the worse the disease, but also in the case of a risk to use of S1P receptor modulators, for instance, the presence of diabetes increases the chances of uveitis and or uh, macular edema. And this is important for patients who are being considered for say fingolimod, which has the highest incidence of that macular edema. If they have known cardiac problems or coronary artery disease, this is something that may affect whether or not you want to uh, uh, pick an S1P receptor modulator since it can affect the heart muscle. And it is metabolized in the liver, so if you're dealing with someone who's a cirrhotic or who's had any other primary liver problems, they, they may not be the right patient to choose an S1P receptor modulator. I like to think about disease-modifying medications in the three categories. Immunomodulators, which have been around for the longest time, these are our first-line therapies that have no immunosuppressive effect and the least amount of safety issue, but do have less efficacy than the other categories. A middle category of drug, which I'll call the anti-T cell trafficking agents, which include the new S1P receptor modulators as well as natalizumab, they prevent the cells from getting into the central nervous system to cause disease, but they do have some problems. And the fact that they stop T-cell trafficking means surveillance, the immune surveillance of the body has been affected, and so patients are more opt to get opportunistic infections. The one that we're most concerned about is PML, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is most seen with natalizumab, but has also been seen substantially with fingolimod, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. The other problem is because these cells are not removed from the body, they're just prevented from getting into the central nervous system where they cause the MS problem. When you stop these drugs, they either open the wall in the case of natalizumab or 
they re-express the uh, S1P on the surface of their, uh, the lymphocytes that have been trapped in the lymph node by the S1P receptor modulators. And now all these cells exit the lymph nodes and are circulating around looking for their target, which would be the central nervous system. So in both cases, natalizumab or the S1P receptor modulators, you better be on guard for rebound MS, which tends to occur usually within a few months of stopping the drugs. The third category are the cell depleting therapies, which we won't talk about any further today, but they are the most potent of the therapies we have. And uh, they have their own nuances because they are the uh, ones that carry the greatest risk. We'll talk about a little bit later importance uh, of uh, understanding where you're going to go if you're going to transition from an S1P receptor modulator to a cell depleting therapy because there are certain precautions that one has to take. Where do the uh, S1P receptor modulators fit into our treatment algorithm? Today, we can use them first line for the most part around the world. Some places will only give them second line, but for the most of the part, we can, we can start with them. So if you have somebody who's slightly more aggressive, you'd be able to start with an S1P receptor modulator. Fingolimod, for instance, has been proven to be highly effective in the children. And so that probably is a first line therapy for pediatric MS. The main area we're likely to see them is in patients who are switching from the other drugs, the immunomodulators, and that's probably the biggest class, moving from, say, interferon to, uh, to an S1P receptor modulator. We know that when you've done this or we've done this, uh, we've seen that uh, relapse rates continue to go down, that MRIs improve. We see even uh, a slowing of brain atrophy and no particular uh, bad adverse outcomes in patients switching from immunomodulators to the S1P receptor agonists. Adherence is going to be a problem because we can't have patients stop this drug suddenly because of the rebound. So it's important that we discuss a lot of things up front about the potential adverse events of these drugs and, and ensure that patients stay on the medication as much as possible. There's some routine blood monitoring that is advised, especially with regards to the lymphocyte counts, since the opportunistic infections tend to occur when you're dealing with the higher grades of lymphocytopenia. And it's even recommended in some places that even though the lymphocytes don't, the lymphocyte count doesn't represent the lymphocytes in the body, since these are sequestered cells, but even though the lymphocyte count, say, falls below 0.2, the, the lymphocytes are still there, but functionally, there's not enough of them running around the, uh, the body to be protective, so there's some suggestion that uh, the drug needs to be stopped. And that's up to the individual physician as to whether they do that or not and how much they're willing to tolerate. And then we usually look for, of course, response to therapy by evaluating relapses, periodic MRI scans, and of course, doing the examinations, while at the same time being vigilant for the appearance of opportunistic infections such as herpes zoster and the, the big one, PML. I'll talk briefly about PML in a moment. Uh, when we think about the precautions, we already talked about looking for uh, the cardiac symptoms and any bradyarrhythmia or slowing of the heart rate or conduction block. These are all things to worry about. Uh, monitoring for the liver function is important and that's why routine liver function tests should be done. And some common adverse reactions that have been seen, the big ones are usually transaminase increases because of the liver uh, metabolism of these drugs. 
In the case of Fingolimod, we've seen some fairly severe problems that have not yet arisen with the other more specific S1P receptor agonists, such as PRESS, uh, and even malignancies such as melanoma that came up in the early studies. Uh, some other things to think about, uh, you know, recent infection that doesn't go away, this is not the drug that you want to consider for these patients. If they've had recent uh, cardiac disease or unstable angina, this is not something that we want to start. Uh, some cases, uh, if the patient's already known to have a Mobitz 1 or 2 arrhythmia, especially with fingolimod that has led to even heart block, so this is something you would not want to use. In the case of ozanimod, there was particular contraindications in patients who may have untreated obstructive sleep apnea or uh, use of MAO inhibitors, which are rarely used today due to metabolism issues. So uh, we mentioned PML. This is an important, uh, very uh, excessive viral infection of the brain that leads to very severe morbidity or death. It's rare, thank goodness and its prevalence is low, but it's been associated more with natalizumab, another anti-trafficking drug. Nevertheless, there have been considerable cases that have arisen, especially with the fingolimod. Uh, we have not yet seen this with uh, any of the newer S1P receptor modulators, but it's been seen with fingolimod and rarely even with dimethylfumarate. This was reviewed recently and presented uh, a year or so ago uh, based on a, a huge number of exposure for, for fingolimod, uh, it was estimated that there were probably some 37 cases that could be unaccounted for by any other reason, uh, leaving you with a very, very low but significant rate of uh, you know, uh, up to 4.7 patients per 100,000 patient years. Uh, that's about 40 times the uh, less than what we would see with natalizumab. It was interesting that you would see an increase the longer the patients were on it and the older the patients. So older than age 50 tended to be the ones that got the PML, but we also saw that the longer you were on it, the, the better the chances that you got it. Will the newer drugs uh, have the same association? The PML association came out only after the drugs had been out for a period of time and real world data was collected. Uh, in case of uh, duration of therapy, just to co compare this, uh, the, the risk for uh, PML with, with uh, fingolimod at, at year five was only 0.13 per 1,000 compared to 4.17 per 1,000 uh, with natalizumab. So significantly less, but nevertheless significant. This is important because if you're going to move from one of these anti-trafficking drugs that might uh, off, might give you an increased risk to PML, and you're gonna to move to, for instance, what that higher category of drug, the cell depleting therapies. Once you've used the cell depleting therapy, uh, you can't go back, it's, it's, uh, you've depleted those cells. And that's important because the only good defense against PML is a functioning immune system. And if you just knocked out the immune system, you, this patient's gonna to succumb to their PML. So these carryover risks are real. And if you're gonna move from one of the S1P receptor modulators, you probably wanna get a, a, an, an end of treatment MRI for baseline and probably do a lumbar puncture and measure the CSF and look for the JC virus PCR since uh, that's a problem and uh, that would uh, lead to a very severe disease with uh, a cell depleting agent.
The other is the disease rebound, which we've seen within the first three months of Fingolimod. We've yet to see this significantly with the newer uh, S1P receptor modulators, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. And uh, it's something that you have to mitigate for. So it's something, if you're going to move to another therapy, the, the issue is to get them on board within first three months. Fingolimod, it's unclear when you would do that for these other drugs. And I'm just going to remind you about the half-life of uh, the drugs being uh, different and the return of lymphocytes. So you can decide when you would probably want to start since some of the cell depleting agents require the normal lymphocyte count before you can give them. You need to be cognizant of when those cells would come back following cessation of the S1P receptor modulators. Okay. So, you know, there's a couple of other interesting things that have occurred with these, and these were secondary outcome measures. In the case of cognitive problems, which we know are very prevalent in all our patients, we've yet to really have a medicine that makes a huge difference in these folks. It was interesting that uh, when we looked at the Ozanimod trial, it actually led to an improvement in the SDMT, one of the most commonly used tests for assessing cognitive function in MS. And maybe this is a drug that will actually improve cognition. Similarly, in the uh, uh, secondary progressive study, Siponamod looked like it was doing the same thing for secondary progressive MS patients, at least uh, a hint of an effect on SDMT, whether that changes the uh, outcome in, in overall in these patients is, is yet to be decided since it's only one measure. Fatigue is another huge issue for patients and up to 80% suffer from fatigue and often can't work as a result of the fatigue. It's, it's a major problem for most patients and we've yet to find an adequate therapy. So it was fascinating when the Ponesima trial uh, picked this as a second, the first secondary outcome to look at and using a, a questionnaire for this patient-related outcome that was endorsed by the FDA, they saw a significant improvement in fatigue. So maybe there are other reasons to choose the S1P receptor modulators other than, of course, disease control. Some of the concerns uh, regarding COVID-19 have been uh, arisen and most lately the question of whether uh, certain drugs should be avoided in the case of uh, COVID-19. And I think the S1P receptor modulators have not shown us that these patients are at an increased risk of getting uh, COVID-19 or having more severe disease with COVID-19. In fact, one of the drugs, Fingolimod, was actually tested as a treatment for COVID-19 in patients who were in the ICU. The issue has come up, however, with regards to vaccine responses. We already have seen that Fingolimod can reduce uh, the immune response to vaccine. And when it came to COVID, the, uh, the study that was uh, shown was that the, the COVID response, both humoral as well as cellular were dampened uh, by fingolimod, whereas with the anti-CD20s, you got very little uh, uh, humoral response, but there was still some T-cell response. The, both the T-cell and the B-cell response, so the antibody and cellular response to COVID vaccines were impaired by the S1P receptor modulators. Whether those tests actually mean anything and patients are at an increased risk still uh, after vaccination requires a little bit more vigilance and we've yet to see that data.
So in summary, the S1P receptor modulators are all proven to be more effective than at least the first-line therapies. In the case of fingolimod and ozanimod, uh, that is superior to interferon beta-1A given once weekly. In the case of ponesimod, better than daily teraflunamide. The newer S1P receptor agonists, the uh, ozanimod, ponesimod, saponimod, they're probably safer than the first-generation fingolimod because of their improved specificity to the R1 and 5. They have less bradycardia, so less need for first dose monitoring. And because they're also titrated in, they also have less propensity to cause bradycardia. We have yet to see some long-term safety data, and especially because there have been no PML cases to date, doesn't mean that that won't happen. We only saw those after the clinical trials with fingolimod. The advantages with at least two of the new S1P receptor modulators, ozanimod, because of its particular effect on, on improving cognition, might be a choice in certain individuals. The other, in terms of uh, ponesimod, because it's been shown to be having a positive effect on fatigue. We have seen that all these drugs have the propensity to interfere with vaccine responses. We've only measured this really in, with fingolimod, and a, a tidbit of data has emerged with some of the other drugs, but not enough to be uh, convinced of lack of an effect. Whether the uh, inability to generate a humoral or T-cell response to see the COVID vaccine will translate into increased susceptibility remains to be seen. So in the end, I hope that I've been able to educate you a little bit about the S1P receptor modulators and you have an idea of how this might be useful in the treatment of your patients. And I want to thank you for your attention. This thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KAP 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC.